Welcome to the Reframers Podcast. Arguing with friends and fam about politics is hard. New plan. Let's reframe what it means to discuss and disagree by talking and listening to each other. We're the Reframers. Did you see the, um, did you go to the Oye website? I did not. So this is the website. It gives you the background and then the question and then the ruling. So it's facts, question, conclusion. And just so you know, that's how we call it. The, we called it the ruling. But that's exactly how we do the analysis in law school when you're doing like Socratic method and going through a case. Oh. It's always, OK, first person, give me the facts of the case. Second person, what is the question? And then the third person has to give you like the ruling, what the court actually held. And then the reasoning is the like last thing. Is this like way helpful? helpful. You gave me the website like four or five days ago. And I should have looked at it. And I was like, I don't know what Oyez is. So I didn't go. And it's I like read spark through literally. Notes for a Supreme Court case. <laughs> I read literally the decision, like not the whole decision for all the cases, but I read like the syllabus Amazing. and the like oh, per whatever it's called. Syllabus for Dobbs was like 10 pages per curiam opinion. Which yeah, was per curiam. Also yeah, I read the per curiam long. for all of them. I probably read 100 pages of Supreme Court. Documents. Oh my God, Zach. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> you poor thing. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it is okay. You know, it was informative, illuminating. Super fun to just sit there and read Supreme Court cases, isn't it? <laughs> okay. This part has to go in, in the episode. I don't know how much, but those <laughs> okay. MFers are sassy. Oh my sometimes God, right? it's sometimes it's very straightforward, right? Sometimes it's Here's the situation. You know, they're, they're not really mincing. It's not a lot of flavor. Oh, my God. I think I wrote in the document, sassy, because they said something that this court finds no evidence whatsoever that blah, 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 blah. I was like, whoa, dude, you guys are like really putting some sauce on that one. Okay, so there's no there's none of these decisions in this term, but the king of all sass is Scalia almost any opinion that he writes it's filled with just like sass sometimes like vitriol and he just has these incredible (sighs) zingers constantly when you're reading a Scalia opinion you're like oh my god (laughs) like the whole time check out his Lawrence v Texas opinion it's crazy the part that I like specifically called out was in Kennedy versus Bremington school district and the bit is a government's entity's concerns about phantom constitutional violations do not justify actual violations of an individual's First Amendment rights. I was like, whoa, dude, phantom constitutional violations. You are like really. Wow. Said putting a lot of sauce on it. Not yeah. having it today. I'm going to have to look up some of those zingers for next time because I remember reading them every once in a while in my like law school textbooks and underlying them and just being like, damn, <laughs> depending on what one <laughs> That's <like>. awesome. <laughs> That's oh, so God. good. Because every once in a while, it's like just a straight insult. They're basically like the other side are idiots who like don't understand legal reasoning. Every once in a while, that's like essentially what they're saying. Yes. Yeah. Incredible. Yep. I I love that. I was just saying that's so funny. And that would be how I would approach it if it was my job. It's very sad. But then the end is always like, it has so been ordered or whatever they say at the end. And I'm like, well, okay, I guess there's no arguing it. It is so ordered. Okay. (laughs)
for anyone who doesn't know, is O-Y-E-Z is how it's spelled. Now it's Oye. And it's the, when you like bang the gavel, go Oye, 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 that like starts the case. That's like what that's from. Oh, And so there's this website called called Oye.org and it has summaries of like every Supreme Court decision ever. Super helpful resource, especially if you don't want to be Zach and read 100 pages of Supreme Court opinion. <laughs> Although very It's also impressive. a beautiful website. I have it up now and I'm looking through it. It's it's very beautiful. It's nice font, like good, good yeah, it's layout. Good UI. It's, mm-hmm. I, I approve. Yeah. Hello, Reframers. Welcome, welcome to another episode. We're so glad you're here. I am Cassie, and I'm joined by my teammates and fearless leaders, Aaron and Zach. How you doing, Aaron? Hi, I'm good. How are you guys? Doing pretty good. Happy to be here for another episode. Thanks for joining us. So everybody, we are talking about the Supreme Court decisions today. And I personally need this because I was asking some clarifying questions with Aaron earlier. I didn't really realize the schedule of how the Supreme Court decisions work. So what we're going to do today is kind of just let you know how the Supreme Court kind of moves through their year in terms of hearing, deciding what they're going to hear and making decisions and then releasing those decisions. We're going to talk about who the justices are right now, just to refresh your memory in case it's been a minute. And then we're going to go through three categories of decisions that were released. We're going to do six cases. The topics will be abortion, administrative law, and civil rights. So I don't know if administrative law is going to be interesting. Maybe you guys will tell me it is. But, oh, man, those other two. You're going to want to be here for the Administrative law will be interesting. I promise. Okay. And as always, our reframers have done some research just to be educated on the topic, but we always like to make sure that we're not talking based only on opinion. However, it's not a requirement that you enter any political conversation that you have with a friend or family member or whoever it might be you're speaking to, having done a ton of research. Our goal at the reframers is to make it comfortable and less scary and attacky to talk about political decisions and things that are going on in the world, even if you're not an expert. So Zach, I know, made a lot of extra work for himself on accident and really dove in and has 43 pages of notes. That's not unlike our Zachary. And Aaron actually attended a really cool lecture or a talk. So we have some different, we're hitting it from different sides. And as always, I know little to nothing and I'm here to learn. So let's jump in. Aaron, help us out. Give us an overview. Okay. So I just wanted to let everyone know how a Supreme Court term kind of works. There's certain kinds of cases that the Supreme Court can hear, and it's actually laid out in Article 3 of the Constitution, what federal courts are allowed to hear. And there's certain cases and controversies is the language. And so the Supreme Court can hear cases that kind of rise up below, like from the lower courts, because remember, we have a dual court system where there's federal courts and state courts. And decisions can get appealed up the levels of courts. So you go from, if we're talking about the federal courts, it goes district court to a circuit court to the Supreme Court. So you actually have to appeal up the levels of the courts to get to the Supreme Court. And then certain controversies like between states. Sorry, just mm-hmm. to jump in, nothing ever goes, nothing's ever like big enough or important enough that it goes straight to the, to the cert- Supreme Court. It always There's starts certain things small. that can go straight to the Supreme Court. Like if it's a dispute oh. between two states. That would go directly to the Supreme Court. For, for example, um, too, the Bush-Gore controversy went election? to the Supreme Court, right? That was like... Yes, because and that it, was a case. Be- yeah, okay. 
Mm-hmm. Bush v. Gore. Mm-hmm. And that went directly to the Supreme Court to decide. Because you can't have like one state or, or one candidate's state versus another candidate's state. Like the the authority over that would be the federal level. I think that was just because it was a presidential election. Honestly, I should know the exact rule okay. about that. This is literally constitutional right, law. Sorry for and questioning I don't like have <laughs> the words for that. I thought it had to do with the urgency in which the matter was needing to be resolved because the election took place in November so. and we had to inaugurate oh my God, a, I a new it. president. And yeah. so like they had to go through the whole process before the January 21st date. So I think that's why it's like, okay, Bush v. Gore. And then it quickly went up the chain to the Supreme Court to decide, you know, do we count the hanging chads or not? So I think that's my understanding, but I could be wrong. So when a case actually gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court grants cert. So if you've heard of that, granting certiorari is, or cert, that is, means that the court has decided to hear the case. So if they hear the case, there's oral arguments that happen, and that's usually sometime in the fall. And there's always like lots of commentary about them, the types of questions that the justices are asking. The attorneys who are presenting can give some insight sometimes into what that you think they might be leaning towards as as far as the decision. There's oral argument. And then once the oral argument is closed, the Supreme Court will kind of deliberate between themselves. And that's usually just the form of like writing the opinion and then sending drafts back and forth. There's a lot of commentary on exactly how the Supreme Court worked like behind closed doors. And then they issue their opinions usually sometime in the spring. And so it's sort of this year cycle. And then they're kind of off during the summer. So we got a whole bunch of opinions this year that came out in the spring. So and they were kind of stacked unless there is something that's like a injunctive relief case or something like that. Like there was a so there was a Texas law earlier this year that sought to put limits on abortion. So this is before Dobbs. And that ended up getting to the Supreme Court and they just rejected review of that case, I think. And so that was a big deal because I was like, well, why wouldn't they hear that case? And then they ended up hearing the Dobbs case later. Before we get in, I just want to mention who the justices are because we're going to be talking about these people. You've probably heard their names a little bit. So I just want to run through them real quick and also who they were appointed by because that is helpful information. So first we have Chief Justice Roberts. I'm going to start with him just because he's the Chief Justice. He's not been on the bench the longest, but after him, I'm going to go in order of how long they've been on the bench. So Chief Justice Roberts, he was nominated by George W. Bush, and he started on the Supreme Court in 2005. Then we have Clarence Thomas. He was nominated by Normal Bush, not W. Bush, and he's been on the court. (laughs) Normal Bush. (laughs) What's his first name? I forgot. (laughs) Also George. Still George. <laughs> normal Bush. H.W. We're going to call him Normal Bush. Normal Bush. Normal Bush. I'm going to cry so early in this episode. <laughs> but Thomas has been on the court the longest so far. He started serving in 1991, which is before I was born. So is Thomas the one that was just like he's wrapped up in his wife maybe being involved in the insurrection. Yes, is that, that him? is that person. His wife, Jenny Thomas, has been sort of part of the investigation of January 6th because of text messages she sent and other sort of ancillary involvement. <laughs> yes. The, yeah, he's easily in a little bit of some scandal right now. 
Um, and then the next oldest is Stephen Breyer, who's actually retired from the court, but he participated in this term. And so this most recent term. So some of the, the opinions that we're going to talk about are ones that he actually weighed in on. But he's retired since then and been replaced by Judge Jackson, who was nominated by Biden. And she just took her seat on the Supreme Court in June 2022. So after this term had ended. So not involved. So she in was not involved then? in these decisions. Stephen Breyer was involved in these decisions, and he was nominated by Clinton. Okay, now quick roll call. Then we have Alito. He was nominated by W. Bush, and he started serving in 2006. Then Sotomayor, who was nominated by Obama and started in 2009. Elena Kagan, who was also nominated by Obama, and she started in 2010. And then we have Gorsuch, who was nominated by Trump and started in 2017. Kavanaugh, also nominated by Trump, started in 2018. And then Amy Coney Barrett, who was also nominated by Trump and started in 2020. So that is the current Supreme Court that made the decisions that we're going to talk about today with that one, you know, Breyer having retired since then. Thank you for the roll call. I think it's helpful also to know when everybody was brought in. And by whom? That's the correct use of by whom. <laughs> I think so. And right? if anyone, if anyone is counting, the number of conservative-leaning justices who were appointed by conservatives right now in the court is six, and the number of more liberal-leaning justices appointed by Democratic presidents is three. And that's important when you're talking about how these Supreme Court decisions broke down. Yeah, there's this weird unsaid thing with the court, right? Where it's like you, they're not re- they're all neutral. But not really, right? It's like who they're nominated by pretty much goes to tell you how they're going to decide based off of the ideology of who the president was that nominated them. Although there's... And I have about a thousand things I want to ask, <laughs> but I know we can't fit them all in today. There's definitely been Supreme Court justices who surprised people or were more moderate mm-hmm. or more liberal, you know, depending on who they were nominated by. But in general, that has held true. It, Roberts has been kind of he 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 doesn't just stick to the party line, right? I mean, he isn't he one that kind of jumps over to the liberal side a, a decent amount. It's it's him or it's the guy like, that not not really. I mean, like every once in a while he'll be kind of a swing oh. vote, like in the decision regarding Obamacare, he wrote yeah. the majority opinion yeah. which upheld yeah, the yeah. law, but he wasn't making some kind of liberal stand there or really aligning with the liberals. That was a pretty moderate decision. But in general, he's pretty conservative in the way that he rules. But like think, probably less so than someone like Clarence Thomas. You're thinking of Kennedy. Yeah, Anthony Kennedy, Kennedy was was a swing vote. And it was a very important member yeah. on the court because of that. I want to ask you a question that is maybe nuanced or maybe it's obvious but if we're sitting here and a bunch of decisions go through while there's a very strong conservative majority then that does that mean that all six cases we're going to hear about right now are going to be conservative side i don't know the word wins what should i be expecting here is is there going to be any surprises or is this just going to be a list of like things that the conservatives accomplished this year i don't think so i, I think i think so I th- <laughs> oh really <laughs> there oh, okay. you go okay yeah, i do <laughs> no because we're only going to talk about six cases today but we are going to talk about another one so maybe the cases i'm thinking of are are in next week's episode where a few of them you know biden won you know, it's Biden v. Missouri or something like that, maybe, 
where Biden actually won that one. So a majority, yeah, the conservative side, definitely. I'm speaking just from a purely like, if Biden wins that case, like whatever Biden's rule was, was like the liberal victory, right? So I, but I think, you know, what you're asking is definitely the case that in a lot of these decisions, it was like 6-3 with most of the conservative justices aligning. And then I actually wrote down in my notes who won and by what margin, because I thought that was interesting to know. So hmm. uh, well, I'm sure as we go through mm-hmm. each one, we'll we'll note that out. Mm-hmm. Okay, folks, shall we dive in? Let's dive in. We are going to start with the big kahuna. We're going to go right for abortion. So this is the case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. I'm going to hand it off to one of the people who know more about this. And we're going to just so you guys know, we're going to talk about basically who sued who, what grounds, what the decision was, and our thoughts, just so you have a rough format of what to expect. So for the Dobbs case, there's a Mississippi law that says that except in a medical emergency or in the case of a severe fetal abnormality, a person shall not intentionally or knowingly perform an abortion on an unborn human being if the probable gestational age of the human has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks. So basically, it's a 15-week ban on abortion in the state of Mississippi. And then you have Jackson's Women's Health Organization, which is an abortion clinic, and one of its doctors that the challenged the abortion act. clinic. It's the only abortion clinic in Mississippi. In Jackson, Mississippi? I think in the state. Okay. Or in Mississippi. in Mississippi. Yeah, the only licensed abortion facility in Mississippi. Damn. So they challenged the act then that saying that it violated the court's precedents establishing a constitutional right to abortion, in particular Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. What was held in that decision is the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. Roe and Casey are overturned, and the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. That's the very succinct, as short as I can make it, summary of what happened in this case. Thanks for adding the context about the only abortion clinic, because I think that is maybe not pertinent to the law, but it is pertinent to the situation that we face ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in this case, the Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion of the case, which all of the conservative justices joined. It was a 6-3 decision. And then Thomas Kavanaugh and Roberts each wrote a concurring opinion, and Kagan wrote a dissenting opinion on behalf of the more liberal justices. So Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer. And just and just to let everybody know up front, what that means is that if you said Alito wrote the majority, mm-hmm. he's writing the opinion that everybody agrees with, those six. And then the dissenting is the other three then that say kind of their response, even though they quote unquote, like lost the decision, they still get to say what their reasoning and rationale was and you can read the majority and minority decisions to see what the the judges were thinking and why they voted the way they did in each case. And then you said, too, that there was a few justices that wrote another concurring opinion. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, but that's basically them saying, we agree with the vote, but we also think that it's for these other reasons that are not in the majority opinion. Is that right? Yes. Or would have, yeah, or would have decided it slightly differently. Like Roberts had a really interesting concurrence in this case where he would have voted to uphold this law from Mississippi, 
with the 15-week ban, but would not have overruled Roe v. Wade, but mm. joined the decision that effectively does that. Interesting. So he had an interesting one. And then Thomas's opinion has been talked about a lot. Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion, because it had some very strong language about overturning Roe for one, and then also the mm. implications of overturning Roe for some of the other cases that are decided on this sort of legal theory of substantive due process, this plethora of rights in the Constitution. So which is about like, even if a right isn't specifically listed in the Constitution, right, we have like a Bill of Rights that tells us what, what rights we are. There's this illegal theory that says, well, based on the rights we have, we can infer that there's other rights that we have. And this is a big deal in the abortion cases because it's where we get this idea of a right to kind of like bodily privacy. And that's how largely how the Roe decision was first decided. And a lot of the rhetoric in Alito's opinion, especially Thomas's opinion, is basically saying this legal theory doesn't work for Roe. And then for Thomas, it doesn't work full stop. And none of these rights are in the Constitution. And so we shouldn't be making decisions about these types of rights, basically, because they're not listed in the Constitution. We don't protect them as a Supreme Court is basically what his opinion kind of said. Yeah, that's that's Which doesn't exactly mean that it. they can't be protected. Oh. They're just not protected by the Constitution. Congress could then write a law that says we make this a law, you know, the right to abortion is a protected right and states cannot ban abortion, right? That would be a way to do it that then would become a law that now states have to abide by. But as it's written right now, and they say this, so they go through and kind of break down the logic or the reasoning behind why the decision was made. And they say, the Constitution makes no express reference to the right to obtain an abortion. But then they say, you know, but several provisions have been offered as an implicit right. And that's what Aaron was just mentioning. And then they say, the court examines whether the right to obtain an abortion is rooted in the nation's history and tradition, and whether it is an essential component of ordered liberty. And then they determine that the court finds the 14th Amendment does not protect right to abortion, until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. So they're basically saying for much of American history, this idea that I think Roe and Casey were decided on were not constitutionally sound. And so based off of that, we feel like we're going to reverse those decisions because there is no law that protects that right. And obviously, this is a really big deal decision for lots of reasons. It's a big deal when you're thinking about the legal theory and the idea of overturning precedent. It's obviously got a lot of practical impacts for the country. There were a lot of states that had trigger laws, which basically mm -hmm. said if Roe v. Wade gets overturned, then immediately a ban on abortion will go into effect. And some of them are bans with some exceptions carved out and then some are wholesale bans and some are actually they're bans at the point of conception so just a wholesale Next no day. abortion and there's been some interesting yeah. developments since then like kansas actually voted to keep abortion which was sort of a surprise and very interesting but i think it's right now over half the states will prohibit abortion have or are in the process of prohibiting abortion so i think that's where we're at right now and that took effect like almost immediately after this decision came out. I think 18 states had trigger bans like right away. So like mm -hmm. immediately 18, I think was the number that as soon as it was overturned, those laws took effect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's just on the legal side, it's really rare that the court will take away a fundamental right that has 
that a, a previous decision found there to be a fundamental right. And the mm -hmm. court is now saying, no, actually, this is not a fundamental right. And it's kind of interesting because something that Alito said in his opinion to defend this idea of, well, we're not bound by stare decisis, which is the you know legal theory that you're going to abide by precedent. He mentioned cases like Brown versus Board and Plessy versus Ferguson, mm -hmm. which are really important cases that did overturn precedent. So Brown versus Board of Education was saying that segregation was unconstitutional and that overturned a prior decision. I think it over I think it actually overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. Yeah, Plessy said, was yeah, saying separate but that, equal is is okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That that yeah, segregation was okay. So that was their example of like, well, we can actually, you know, overturn decisions when they're made totally incorrectly is the argument. Mm. But it's different. You're actually granting a right in Brown v. Board versus taking away a right that the court has said in the past mm -hmm. that you have. So I don't I didn't think that was like <laughs> that great of a comparison, but that that was one of the arguments that they made to defend this idea that they're overturning precedent. And one of the, the other things that they talked about was that overruling this decision would not upend concrete reliance interests. And that just, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, whether you agree with abortion or not, I think it's wrong to say that there hasn't been reliance on it existing the way that it has at least. And that is one of the decisions that's supposed to factor in with overturning precedent. And the court didn't seem to give that very much weight. And I was kind of surprised by that. Can you can you explain that? Is is that basically the idea then that if there's a reliance on, in this case, the right to an abortion, then by taking away that right, it it creates like a, a an undue burden or something like that on those potentially no, it's affected. A, it's one of the factors you're supposed to consider when deciding if you're going to overturn precedent. So it Got just it. weighs okay. either in favor or against overturning precedent depending on the type of effect it will have based on how oh, much okay. reliance the society has set on it so it would be like taking out like a pillar of a building that's really you know it's yes, there's something that's exactly. very concrete and, and goes back in it. our mm -hmm. history mm -hmm. and you take away that pillar all the things that are built upon that pillar are undermined that makes sense yeah right. that's the idea I mean, it's a, it's an interesting case if you're thinking about it just legally, because if you're someone who thinks that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, this is correcting that decision. Obviously, mm -hmm. if you're someone who thinks that Roe v. Wade was correctly decided, this is, you know, hugely detrimental. So, and then yeah, of justice. Yeah, just huge polarizing ideas on both sides. I mean, like my Instagram feed when this decision came out, was crazy. And I, I saw it from both sides, people totally celebrating and people being like, this is the end of democracy. Yeah. So I'll just jump at it first, I guess. I actually don't think that this was the right call. Like may, maybe legally speaking, it was sound and they had every right to reverse it based off of you know the reasons that they cited in the decision. But I actually think that this is not the correct decision, which maybe as the conservative in the group is is surprising. But I think abortion is such a divisive and polarizing issue that it effectively creates a black market for these things. And I think in the long run will actually do more harm than good. I mean, I was I was looking into Reason Mag, which is like the libertarian website magazine. 
And they noted correctly that, that whenever you outlaw something, it tends to drive that market underground. And abortions were at like a 20 or 30 year low recently. Still, they're, they're fairly common, but they're actually at a very low number. And I think that by doing this and outlawing it in, let's say it's half the states now, I think it'll actually do more harm than good from the protecting life perspective, I guess. I, I, that, that feels strange to say, but I think it's the case. So I'm actually not in favor of this decision, and I wish we were able to come about it from a better, more clear standpoint, but it's obviously very complex. Yeah. Abortion is such a hard issue. It's, it's one of the hardest ones for me personally, and I think that I have a lot of complicated feelings about it. I really don't like the idea of abortions happening. But I don't think that doing the outlawing abortion necessarily solves that issue. And I get really frustrated with people who want to outlaw abortion and not deal with the root causes of a lot of it, particularly things like sex education and access to contraception and family care and paid family leave. None of those policies seem to be, at least from what I can tell, really embraced by people who are really intense about getting rid of abortion. And that's very disappointing, especially when you have these trigger laws that immediately go into effect to outlaw abortions without having any of those supports. So mm -hmm. I agree. I don't think that, it, like, ultimately, if what you care about is protecting life, why are all of these other things not part of that? And that makes it feel more like the concern is about controlling women than it is about actually dealing with making sure abortions don't happen. Yeah, I tend to agree. It's very emotionally fraught and I don't think it's a wholesale good, but also I think we have to be compassionate and understanding. And this is one of those things that really sucks when like the law gets affects our lives in such great detail, mm -hmm. you know? Our next topic is administrative law. And for most of us, that literally will never, we're never going to come up against the situation where, where we, we curse the government for the administrative law that was decided in Biden versus Missouri. Like it's just not going to happen. But abortion is one of those ones. And yeah, it, it's. It's really heavy. I mean, it's like, it's yeah. like one of the biggest things to happen in our government in a really long time. And I'm, it's, it sucks that it's like literally another unprecedented thing that has happened because it just feels like everything for the past, what, five years, <laughs> really three years, but five years is just unprecedented. And in some ways, it just feels like, like blow after blow. Things that you don't expect to happen are happening. And this is a thing that a lot of people talked about when they're like, I'm really concerned about the Supreme Court and having this power and Roe v. Wade being overturned. And there was a lot of conversation of like, well, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Yeah. And, you know, here we are. Yeah. And one other thing related to this, just because it's been so in the conversation, I mentioned it before. I am concerned about other rights under this substantive due process theory based on Thomas's concurrence. And yeah, other people, the other justices didn't talk about that, but if you are going to be logically and legally consistent, then things like contraception 
which was protected by a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, potentially even gay marriage, which was under Obergefell, those could could be under jeopardy. I thought that that was a little overstated when people were talking about that initially, but I don't know that it is, actually. I think you can distinguish something like Obergefell under equal protection, but Griswold protection of contraception, I don't know if you really can because the root of so much of that is that privacy right that's in the Constitution. So, you know, like you said, Congress could pass a law about it, Mm -hmm. which, you know, would make me feel better about things. But But that's going to require the votes and that's And we don't have the votes. And, you know, kind of on the other side, if we turn over and there's a Republican Congress and a Republican president, there could be a law that says, you know, no abortion, no contraception, no IVF, all of those things for, for the entire country, right? Like that could happen in either direction. So I do think it's an opportunity potentially for, I mean, the way I'm thinking about it, for grads to actually like govern through law and not like kick things to the Supreme Court. You know, there's a little bit more that we could maybe do to be more active in this area. But we have to we'd have to be like actually very active and very motivated to get that kind of thing done. And Democrats have been really honestly like not that great at governing recently. They're just not getting that much done. So, I mean, they did pass a good law recently, but it's it's still just tough with something like this. Well, I mean, this is this is where, you know, the libertarian side of me agrees with the Democrats. I get why the government has an, an interest because of the, you know, the potential life, right? The fetus it's involved. I get why they have inserted themselves into this. But, you know, for the contraception and the gay marriage and the the abortion, it's like, I would really rather it not be the government's business, like protect the people from the government in this respect rather than you know, have the government being a threat to the people. So, and and then, you know, second to your point of actually legislating, like this is something that that has been a trend for the last, I don't know, somebody could probably correct me, but at least 10 years, you know, 15 years is what exactly what you said of letting the Supreme Court decide these really important cultural societal issues that we have rather than either hashing it out and coming to a no decision in Congress or continuing to have the conversation or deciding one way or the other. It's, you know, Congress is supposed to be the representation of the people and our will. And so by by having these kinds of situations where we look to the Supreme Court to decide what is okay to do in the country, I think establishes a very dangerous and, you know, passing the buck. And, and it makes us, you know, not be accountable when I think we should be more involved you know, at the state and and federal levels than we are. But this is this is how it goes. Yeah, I read a really interesting article that was talking about this exact idea. And um, it uh, was saying that they let the court basically like push civil rights forward, as opposed Mm -hmm. to doing it through Congress. And they didn't have to do it that way. And it is a little bit of a cop out. And maybe it's an opportunity for us to step up in another way. You know, it's all good as long as it's stuff you agree with, right? Mm-hmm. But it's like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the the limiting principle in my mind is putting yourself in the shoes of what if the other side gets that power, right? I always would rather the minimum amount of force or influence or whatever it is, you know, be applied because I don't want the other side to then use 
outsized power against me. I would rather use as minimum amount of, of influence as possible because like, I want my own privacy and I, I want my own autonomy and I want my own rights. And so I'm willing to grant all of those things to everybody else who's different than me because I would hope that they would do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you think we should take a break? Dallas is being so good. Let's keep going. Okay. Yeah. Next, we will do admin law. So the next case <laughs> is sorry. Convince me this isn't boring. So Not like me. plateau. Just admin and law. Next up. <laughs> okay. One of the reasons this is interesting is because of COVID, and then the second case or the third case is climate change implications yep. that are actually very big. All right. Fine. So this is why. Okay. That's admin law is interesting. So the first one is, yeah, National Federation of Independent Businesses v. Department of Labor, parentheses, OSHA. You have all heard about this case, whether you realize it or not. This is the vaccine mandate. What? So this this is the federal (laughs) vaccine mandate. All right, let's go. Let's get in. Who sued who? What grounds? What are the decisions? Our thoughts. Okay, so... The background on this one. You said who sued who because you said the title. Sorry. No, that's okay. No, no, but but that's not necessarily clear. So basically what happened is that the Secretary of Labor, acting through OSHA, enacted a vaccine mandate for 84 million Americans. Any employer who had 100 or more employees was required to get a vaccine or they could obtain a medical test each week at their own expense on their own time and wear a mask. So that's what the the rule was. And basically there was a collection of businesses in a bunch of different states that quotes seek emergency relief from the court arguing that OSHA's mandate exceeds its statutory authority and is otherwise unlawful. Agreeing that applicants are likely to prevail, we grant their application and stay the rule. So basically a bunch of businesses from a bunch of different states sued the government OSHA saying you guys are overreaching your authority this is not anything that's that osha has ever been tasked by congress to do and so we asked that you put a pause on this mandate and the court agreed and so the the vaccine mandate did not go into effect this particular one and just like the Dobbs decision it was a 6-3 decision so you had the six conservatives saying that you know osha didn't have this power and that biden couldn't make this mandate and then the three more liberal justices saying, no, you should be able to do this. So it was interesting because there's there's state and federal OSHAs. If people don't know, there's the Federal Occupational Safety Hazard Administration and then states have it too. So California, we've got Cal OSHA, which honestly was kind of my worst enemy during COVID because they kept like (laughs) issuing all these regulations that made no sense that we had to sit there and read through like over and over and try to understand. And then they would update it like two months later and it made no sense. So that was a frustrating time. But the federal ocean not being able to do this basically had this really big effect on employers being able to require employees to get vaccinated versus having you know, the, or testing are not getting vaccinated, but we did, we did a lot related to this of like what employers can do and what they couldn't do. So it was a good time back in the day really goes to what you think about vaccine mandates. What was interesting is that what the liberal justices said was that 
the pandemic affects the safety of the workplace in a very specific way. And so OSHA does have the power to do this because it deals with workplace safety. And the conservatives were kind of like, well, this isn't really workplace safety because it like impacts people's lives in and out of the workplace. So they had kind of this, which which it, I think it probably does, but they had these sort of competing arguments about like, how much of an effect does this have on the workplace to actually be under OSHA's authority? And then it's important because it kind of goes to what can these big administrative departments of the federal bureaucracy actually do? And where's the limit of their power? And this was limiting the power of them to be able to do things. So as Aaron mentioned, they basically were saying that this is this is out of the scope of what OSHA was intended. It says, as the name suggests, OSHA is tasked with ensuring occupational safety, that is, safe and healthy working conditions. And then such standards must be, quote, reasonably necessary and appropriate to provide safe and healthful employment. And they're arguing, as Aaron mentioned, that COVID is not a risk that is unique to the workforce. COVID is a risk that is likely to be encountered anywhere that you go where there are large crowds or, you know, the like in closed spaces or or what have you. They're saying that this is, quote, no everyday exercise of federal power. And we expect Congress to speak clearly when authorizing an agency to exercise powers of vast economic and political significance. So this is just the court saying then that, well, the intention of what OSHA is trying to do, which is there is a risk that is encountered in the workplace, you make no distinction based off of the types of workplaces. And this was not something that is unique to working. And it exceeds the mandate which Congress has given you. Yeah. And the the conservatives in that case were really not swayed by the idea that COVID was an unprecedented kind of situation that would require, you know, more ability for these agencies to act. They actually called that out specifically in the decision. They say this, quote, lack of historical precedent, unquote, coupled with the breadth of the authority that the secretary now claims is a telling indication that the mandate extends beyond the agency's legitimate reach. So they they really felt like, again, a lot of sass coming through in the decision, but like you guys are trying to stretch this too far. And this is a, a, a bad reason why you think you can issue this mandate. Mm-hmm. It's true. And yet, in the decision that came out, Biden versus Missouri, which was this exact same deal, the vaccine mandate, but for healthcare workers specifically, the unprecedented nature of COVID was important in determining that healthcare workers did actually have to get vaccinated. There's a little bit of inconsistent logic here, I think. They tried to draw distinctions, and there are distinctions, but they also talked about how unprecedented COVID was. And so it's like, well, if you didn't think it was unprecedented in this decision that you literally just made, and that is like not a reason to make the decision, weird that now that it's unprecedented, it's like, okay. The distinction then is basically that in the state of Missouri, the health and human services administrators who decide where the funds for Medicare and Medicaid go set a rule that if if you are a recipient or work in a place that receives Medicare and Medicaid funds, that you need to be vaccinated. And so that's basically the, stink, the distinction between the two cases is one is OSHA said any company in the United States over 100 employees has to get vaccinated with the exception. 
And then in the Missouri case, they said, if you're receiving these funds, which is pretty much just like healthcare centers, you know, hospitals, therapy clinic, you know, anything related to the health industry, that those workers had to be vaccinated in Missouri. And the court found in, as Aaron mentioned, that because of the significant nature of COVID, let's see, the secretary issued the rule after finding that vaccination of healthcare workers against COVID-19 was necessary for the health and safety of individuals to whom care and services are furnished. So because the workers were specifically in the medical field, that those, those people that fell under that category were required to get vaccinated in order to protect the health and safety of the patients in their care. And just for reference, this was actually a 5-4 decision. Roberts and Kavanaugh joined the three liberals. So they were the two who, you know, came over and said that this was okay. Clarence Thomas and Amy Coney Barrett and Neil Gorsuch all also dissented. And they basically said there's no statutory authority for this. Sort of a similar argument to the one they made in the National Federation case. So they were... At least I think a little bit more consistent in their (laughs) reasoning, even though I think, like I said, you can draw some distinctions, but it's, it felt a little bit, I don't know what the word is, like cherry picking to me. So the consensus was healthcare workers don't have to be fully vaccinated. No, that you could have a vaccine mandate. But in that case, only because they were healthcare workers Mm -hmm. in that specific way of receiving funding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the, some of the reasoning that they use is when asked at oral arguments whether the secretary could require hospital employees to wear gloves, sterilize instruments, and wash their hands in a certain way and at certain intervals and the like, Missouri answered yes. Of course, the vaccine mandate goes further than what the secretary has done in the past, but they conclude that, like Aaron said, that the situation with the COVID pandemic would be like the risks of not vaccinating and potentially having more deaths and, and hospitalizations due to healthcare workers infecting patients, which goes against the Hippocratic Oath, would be more of a risk than just saying you should require healthcare workers to be vaccinated. Okay. And I don't want to get too caught up, but why would this be Biden versus Missouri? That sounds very high level for the name of it. Like, did someone sue Biden or what? So I believe it's because of the Medicare and Medicaid portion. So there was the Missouri rule and then Biden was arguing as a part of the federal government. You know, it's not literally Biden sitting in court, but it's like the government, you know, ruling that yes, indeed, Missouri, you can allow that the the healthcare workers receive the the mandate. Like your your ruling stands. Does that happen a lot? Biden where I mean, like are there a lot of like Trump versus and and Obama versus? There are thing? some. Biden was trying to enforce the nationwide rule that the Biden administrative administration made that required healthcare workers at facilities who received this Medicare funding to get vaccinated. And so that's why it's Biden versus Missouri, because it was the Biden rule. And they were trying, they were suing to enforce it. Biden was a petitioner. So there are cases, like I'm I'm pretty sure there's Trump cases. I know there's Obama cases of trying to enforce certain rules. For example, there were 67 decisions made by the Supreme Court in this last session, only one of them is Biden v. And it's this one, Biden v. Missouri. The other 66 cases are other petitioners and, and defendants. So a lot of it is like Texas, like United States v. Texas, Mississippi v. Tennessee, Hempville versus New York. So it's a lot of like government agencies on one side and then either another government agency or an individual or, or an organization on the other. 
So any anything else on these two? I don't think so. Important cases, though. Let's move on to our third administrative law, West Virginia versus the Environmental Protection Agency. You might have heard it as the EPA. You ever heard of it? EPA? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why I sounded so smug, like I barely know what it is, but why don't we go in? Okay. So I want to preface this real quick. Yeah. Just to say, I took an entire class on administrative law in law school. Admin law is like, it's pretty difficult because it's it's complicated and it's dense but it has such big impacts if you want to know about law that actually like really impacts our lives administrative law is where so much of the work of government happens and if people don't know there's actually administrative law judges that rule on administrative law decisions specifically so they're not like dealing with the same kind of laws that other people are dealing with like they specifically are there to deal with administrative law questions. And we're talking about administrative law. So when Congress makes a law basically about like, say the Clean Air and Water Act, that was a law that that Congress passed to keep our air and water clean. There's all these different requirements in the law about what you can and can't do. But Congress doesn't really have the ability, this is the idea, to individually figure out how you're going to actually enforce that law. Enforcement of laws is actually under the executive branch. That's why, like, the DOJ sits under the executive branch. So there's all these agencies that get these laws, and then they basically figure out how you're going to apply and enforce them across the board. And to do that, oftentimes they have to make rulings or guidance to enforce the law and also to explain the law. And so there's a whole body of law, this is the administrative law, that actually decides basically like sets of parameters of how agencies can do this. So for example, one of the things they have to do if they're going to make a rule is they have to have like a notice and comment period where people can send in comments and then they have to respond to those comments. So it can actually take a really long time for them to make a rule. And this is a difficult area because there's a little bit of a blur between like legislation and lawmaking and actually enforcing the law. And so it's that's why ad, admin law is such a big area of law, because you kind of got these like branches fighting with each other over who has the authority to do what. So this is where this case kind of like comes into the fore, because it's exactly what it's about is which branch of government can say what we're doing. And in doing so, you're either giving power to the agency like the EPA or you're taking power away from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Give or take, you know, but no, it does make sense. So in this case, what what happened was the EPA passed or promulgated, I don't want to say passed because it's not a law, but they promulgated the Clean Power Plan rule, which was supposed to address carbon dioxide emissions from existing coal and natural gas fired power plants. Sorry, I just want to like jump in on the facts a little bit more. So The Trump administration had repealed these coal power plant regulations that Obama had actually put in place. So that was the 2015 Clean Power Plan. Trump administration repealed that, and that had established those guidelines for carbon emissions. And instead, it issued the Affordable Clean Energy ACE rule, which eliminated all of those guidelines. Um, The U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit vacated Trump's rule as arbitrary and capricious. When it's talking about all of those like rules for admin law, that's one of those doctrinal standards. 
is you can't issue a rule that is arbitrary or capricious. And there's a whole test for what that means. But basically, this is to stop like the president or agencies from legislating without having to go through Congress. This is one of like the ways that you can't do it. So the D.C. Circuit said this rule that basically overturned Obama's rule is arbitrary and capricious. But then that was challenged by the North American Coal Corporation. And they said that the EPA can't broadly regulate greenhouse gas emissions. So that's how we got to the ultimate question of the case, which is, does the EPA have the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in virtually any industry, so long as it considers cost, non-air impacts, and energy requirements, which is the current rule? So that was the question of the case, of if the EPA actually has the power to do that. Okay, that is super helpful. Thank you. Because I would have probably spent 30 minutes trying to explain (laughs) what the heck was going on there. And the rule was they were saying that they wanted the energy industry to transition from 38 to 27 percent coal by 2030. So basically reduce the amount of energy that we output as a nation from coal from you know 38% down to 27. And so that's where the challenge came from was that this West Virginia coal, I forget the company name, but they said that's severely going to hurt our interests. So we're going to challenge your ruling. Is that right? Basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> sweet. Oh my gosh, it actually has huge implications. So this is a 6-3 decision saying that Congress did not grant the EPA the authority to do admissions caps based on these types of rules. And they talked about this doctrine that they called the major questions doctrine, saying that in extraordinary cases in which there's so much gobbledygook that I like to- totally understand like how they got there. But they're saying if there's like economic and political significance and that there might be, this is a quote, a reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such authority and that in order to make a decision like this so this is specific to capping emissions like greenhouse gas emissions they need a clear congressional authorization and the court said that under the clean air act which is what the epa was doing this under there isn't clear congressional authorization to make this kind of rule so the epa effectively cannot do this unless congress basically passes a law that says they do have the authority to do that. So that's like ultimately where we got to. Why this really matters is because the EPA has been doing things like this for a really long time. And so it actually really limits what the EPA can do without Congress saying like, yes, you can do that. So if you're someone who likes that the EPA has a lot of power to like put gas emission caps on things or, you know, just have higher regulation on environmental protections, you're probably not going to like this decision because you want the EPA to be able to have a lot of discretion to do those things. If you're someone who doesn't like regulation and isn't a fan of the EPA having this power, you're probably okay with this decision. And this is, I'm speaking in like general terms, but you might be kind of okay with this because you want If the EPA is going to be doing things like caps and gas emissions, you want that to come through Congress and actually be deliberated and a law passed about it. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Yes. That all makes sense. Why this is actually a really important decision. Yeah. I was just going to say, Elena Kagan had a really great dissent where she basically was like, 
what is the major questions doctrine. This has never been a decision before, like been in a decision before, which is true. Mm -hmm. The court just talking about this like doctrine of like, well, if it's a major question, then it actually has to like come through Congress. It's like not a thing that the court has mm, talked about before. And so, yeah, it's a, it was a really interesting like, where are you getting this from? You know, so there was a little bit of administrative law like shade being thrown of like, well, like what, mm. what is this? You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no guidance now for what this means going forward. There's actually nothing that tells us what a major question is, like air quotes, major question. Mm -hmm. So the EPA, the next time they want to do something, it's possible that gets challenged. And maybe it's a major question because we don't really know what that means. But what we do know is that they can't cap emissions based on this. There could be a whole other slew of things that EPA can't do now, but we actually don't really know. This decision has a lot of quotes and a lot of referring back to previous decisions and things like that. But they say in it that prior to 2015, the EPA has always set Section 111, which is some law that they get authority it's from. It's a section of the Clean Air and Water Act. Thank you, Aaron. They have always set Section 111 emission limits based on the application of measures that would reduce pollution by causing the regulated source to operate more cleanly, never by looking to a system that would generally reduce pollution simply by shifting activity from dirtier to cleaner sources. So this is kind of them saying, in the past, the EPA has has only made guidance based off of things that are, you know, like slides, you could say, where we're going to try to reduce things that are already in place, rather than shifting an entire industry from, you know, one source of power to the other. So I think that that maybe is what they're trying to get at when they think of these like major questions. I was just going to say, like, it's almost like they're saying climate change is a major question. And that's just like, OK, well, there's so many things that affect that. So, yeah, it it really hampers the EPA from being able to do things. Potentially. And really what this is, I think like the bottom line of this case is that it's an open invitation to businesses to challenge regulations. That's where mm -hmm. we're at, because this actually gives them potentially a doctrinal legal theory to say, actually, the EPA doesn't have the authority to do this. And certainly some precedent right now. There's a decision that that yep. is limiting against the EPA. So, yeah. My my favorite thing is that in this decision, it says the distinction between mootness and standing matters. However, because the government, blah, 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 blah. And that is my new favorite word, the mootness of an issue. Oh, I'm going to use that one all the time. Okay, that's actually like a very specific legal theory. And I could nerd out on this, but like I know no one would care. But constitutional law one as a little like baby first year law student. You get into con law and you're like, oh, my God, I'm going to learn about free speech and equal protection and civil rights. You're all like into it. And then they're like, no, here's standing this is the kind of case you can bring. And it's like the most disappointing thing ever. But we talked about mootness for like two weeks and just read cases about moot case, like what that means. Ugh. I literally like stopped and came in and talked to Cassie. I was like, Cassie, this is the best word I've ever read. The mootness, like government writing down in all seriousness, <laughs> the mootness. And she's like, what, like a cow's point of view? And I was like, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, shall we move on to our next? That's a Friends reference. I don't know if Aaron caught that. Do you watch Friends, Aaron? Nope. <laughs> nope. 
Oh, boy. It's really, there's a funny part where Joey doesn't, he says like, oh, yeah, it's moo. And they're like, what? Did you say it's moo? He's like, yeah, it's like a cow's opinion. It just doesn't matter. And they're like, it's not a terrible definition of like the concept of what we're talking about, but it's wrong. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So we're going to hit our last category for tonight, civil rights. We have two cases we're going to talk about here. Rivas Viegas versus Cortez Luna and the city of Taliqua, Oklahoma versus Bond. Let's get into it. Okay. So for this case, we have petitioner Daniel Viegas, who is a police officer in Union City, California, who responded to a 911 call reporting that a woman and her two children were barricaded in a room for fear that respondent Ramon Cortez Luna the woman's boyfriend was going to hurt them. Um, so what at issue here is that is whether Rivas Viegas is entitled to qualified immunity because he did not violate clearly established law. So in this police incident that happened, Viegas and the other officers had a knife, saw a knife in the Cortez Luna's pocket. And basically in the process of arresting and, and restraining Cortez Luna, I believe, Viegas placed his knee on the back of Cortez Luna for eight seconds. And Cortez Luna is claiming that Viegas used excessive force. And that's what the issue at hand is here. Yeah, it's interesting. So there were two qualified immunity cases. We're talking about one, then we're going to talk about the next one in this Supreme Court term that were sort of interesting because there's been a lot of conversations since the Black Lives Matter movement about if police officers or other officials should have qualified immunity. If you don't know what that is, that basically means that you as a like individual citizen can't sue someone who's a police officer in their individual capacity. You could like sue the police department, even though, but there's even limits on that. But you can't like recover against individual police officer. And so there's a lot of talk during kind of the Black Lives Matter and, and the conversation since then about if we need to get rid of qualified immunity and not give police officers immunity if they're behaving badly in carrying out their duties. So this was like a good opportunity for the court to actually kind of address that issue. And in both of these cases, the court upheld qualified immunity. So that's kind of like the bottom line of both of these is that it's, you know, this one, it was it's domestic violence case. The, The officer used excessive force. What was interesting is that the Ninth Circuit, who heard this before the Supreme Court, remember we're talking about courts go on their way, the Ninth Circuit said that this officer shouldn't have qualified immunity and that this actually should go to a jury and not just be dismissed, which is what happens when you have qualified immunity. It's one of the ways it can get out of the court. And then that got reversed by the Supreme Court and sent back down to the Ninth Circuit to decide, but not through a jury. So the Ninth Circuit kind of was trying to, which if anyone doesn't know the Ninth Circuit, covers like a bunch of Western states, like California is in the Ninth Circuit. The circuit courts are, there's nine or there's 12 of them. I I should know that. There's certain, is it 12? I think there's 12. 12 circuit. Yeah, I think, I think there's 12 circuit courts and they cover different regions of the United States. So if you bring a case in like your state, it's not just your state, it's like your county, there's like district courts that are federal courts. You bring it in district court. And if you appeal it, it would go to your circuit court. And it kind of works like the Supreme Court. Like they don't have to take every single case that gets appealed to them, but they can 
grant cert and, and do those. And then it, if it goes to the circuit court, it might make it to the Supreme Court. So like the Ninth Circuit, which covers all these Western states, is real, it's kind of known for being like more liberal and having more liberal decisions. The Fifth Circuit, which is more in the South, it covers like Texas and there's other states involved. But Texas is a big one, I remember has more like conservative decisions. Not always, but that that does happen. There's like bents of where the circuits are as well. So the Ninth Circuit, it felt like, was kind of trying to push back on this qualified immunity idea. And the Supreme Court came in and was basically like, actually, no, there is qualified immunity here. Kick it back. And some of their reasoning for that was they cited a couple of prior cases, but basically saying that the reasoning that the Ninth gave to why Viegas should not have qualified immunity was based off of this Lalonde decision, but the Supreme Court drew some pretty big distinctions. One being that I think in the Lalonde case, the nature in which the police officers arrested or, or treated the suspects was very different. In the one, the Lalonde case, it was like a noise complaint and the person opened the door and the police forced themselves in and tackled them to the ground and pepper sprayed them. And it was this whole big thing. And so they said that was a very clear excessive use of force case. Whereas in this Viegas case, they were responding to a domestic violence call. But basically, they said the course case that you're using to say that Viegas doesn't have qualified immunity is different enough from the situation at hand here that we don't agree. And so they reverse the decision. Yeah. And we might yeah. as well just go into the next case because they're like very similar sure. facts of these two. So this is, I have no idea how to pronounce this town. City of Talequa. Talequa. You guys got any help from me for there? Me. Yeah, yeah. I think I said it was, I think it was Talequa. Would be my guess. Yeah. Talequa. sounds close. Oklahoma. Oklahoma versus Bond. Um, Any listeners in Oklahoma, <laughs> help us out. Correct us. <laughs> so this was also a case of excessive force, and it was also a domestic violence case. Officers responding to a domestic violence complaint. In this one, the respondent picked he, the person who the excessive force was used against had picked up a hammer, and then the officer shot and killed the person. And so it was an excessive force case. And the question was qualified immunity: whether these officers get qualified immunity. Similar to the Rivas Viegas case is the Supreme Court said, yeah, qualified immunity applies here. And it was similar reasoning in that there wasn't similar precedent that would that would have said that this kind of circumstance would be a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So it's interesting because in both of these cases, it was basically like there's not another holding here that is sufficiently similar to these facts that says that this isn't okay. So basically qualified immunity applies, which sort of brings you to the reasoning of like, it's almost like, okay, well, if it's never there, then can it ever be there? You know, like, mm -hmm. okay, there's no facts with, there's no cases with similar facts, but you can never make a precedent if there's never another case with similar facts, you know, when that comes up. And so sort of begs the question of like, okay, well then does that mean qualified immunity will always be able to be applied. That kind of is maybe the the reasoning the court's going for here, unless the law changes. And what's interesting about both these cases is that both of them were unanimous cases, nine zero cases. There were no dissents in these. And so that means mm -hmm. the court is like really not inclined at this point to have any like questions about qualified immunity. So even though it was a big topic of conversation over the course of the year, 
The court's not showing any inclination to try and mess with it. Yeah, a couple of key things from the decision is they say, we need not and do not decide whether the officers violated the Fourth Amendment in the first place. That was not an issue at all here. But they do say that the doctrine of qualified immunity shields officers from civil liability so long as their conduct does not violate clearly established statutory and constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. And then they conclude by saying a reasonable officer could miss the connection between a case that they're mentioning before as as being different and this one. Neither the panel majority nor the respondent has identified a single precedent finding a Fourth Amendment violation under similar circumstances, which is kind of what you were saying, Aaron, that that there's nothing in in our in our history that backs up what what happened here to revoke qualified immunity from these officers. So if you're someone who wants a qualified immunity to be restricted or, you know, to get rid of it, doesn't seem like the court is going to be your way to do that. I think that's probably going to mm-hmm. need to be some kind of legislation. Seems like it. Yeah. So I think that covers our for our first half of this. Yeah, we, we've got it through ha- halfway. So we have a couple more cases that have to do with civil rights that we'll talk about next time. And then there are cases on free speech, on religion, and on the Second Amendment. So we got a lot of fun stuff to keep going through in our in our next pod. Just as a little teaser, this one was pretty interesting that the first case we'll talk about next week is actually a guy who runs a bed and breakfast that reports on illegal aliens coming into the country, but also shields illegal aliens. So if if you thought that this week's episode was good, make sure to tune in next time for when we discuss the double crossing B&B guy. What the heck did this podcast just become? Also, does this guy just report ones he doesn't like? Like, what's happening? Honestly, who knows? It, it, it My comment okay. next to this is literally <laughs> what? So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's a free country. Do what you want. But also play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. That's Zach's favorite quote lately, you guys, if you're wondering. He will bust it out anytime for any any occasion. Oh, speaking of occasions, reframers, guess who turns 30 this weekend? Woo! It's Zach! It's Zach. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be two out of the three reframers in their third decade of life. Very exciting stuff. Hey, that's crazy. Wait, no. It's your fourth. I mean, if we're going to say it like that. It's your fourth decade of life. I liked third decade better. You're going into the fourth <laughs> decade. <laughs> You've completed yeah, the like third that. decade. Your third. <laughs> no. I'm really sorry. I, dis- I dislike that. I dislike that. I prefer. Dude, no, I don't. I don't. I love the idea of being 30. I, Your 20s, we've talked about this privately, you guys, but like your 20s are so fraught with like, who am I and what should I be? And I feel like your 30s are like, this is who I am. And here's what I'm going to do with that information. Like, you just don't apologize as much. If you're over 30, tell us the best thing about being over 30, because we want more things to look forward to. There's a lot of hoopla and drama about turning 30, but we're not we're not here to receive any of that energy. We want all the good energy. <laughs> yes, all the good 30 stuff. Amen. Okay, friends. Suddenly, we're done with another podcast. Hey, share this with your friends. Share it with your family. And if you haven't yet, please review We love reading your reviews. Five stars. And if you don't like it, how are you this far into the episode? Be honest. You obviously like it. So (laughs) go review.
And another great thing is we are now on iHeartRadio and Ooh. Amazon Podcasts, whatever they're called. So I think you, if you say, hey, Alexa, play the Reframers Podcast, I think that that will come up yet. I haven't tried, tried it, but we are there. And Okay, I'll try tomorrow. Yeah, so if you're on those platforms preferred, check us out there. We're there now. I only have an Alexa in my room, you guys, because Zachary does not want something listening to him in our house. So it's only in my office. And it's off right now, so she's not going to hear you talking crap about her. <laughs> oh, she still hears. She always hears. Alexa is everywhere. You shouldn't have an Alexa. Mm. What did Zach say when, oh, Roomba, I guess, was just bought by Amazon. And Zach was like, fantastic. <laughs> now they know the layout of our homes. <laughs> it's so true, though. It absolutely will. The problem. <laughs> Anyways, we have a robot vac that my mom bought us specifically that like doesn't connect to Wi-Fi. It doesn't know the layout of our home. She was like, I had to really research this for you. <laughs> it's a it's a dumb smart it. robot. I know Zach's preferences. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Okay, friends, we are done. See you later. Love you all. Bye. <laughs>